God, we thank you for your word that you have in the form of the Bible that we can, that we can study and grow closer to you with all of that um, and the spirit that enables us to make sense of all of it. Um, I pray for Brad being up here that uh, you will give him the spirit um, that he can preach to us and edify us, that, that we can be of better service to you um, in this world that we live in. pray that you would open our hearts. Um, open our eyes to doctrine that, <laughs> that is tough to understand, God, um, and assist Brad in doing that. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Josh. The intern. <clears throat> we actually have another intern, too, Teddy, the intern. And Josh and Teddy are buddies that are both trombone majors at Columbus State and coming soon to a Sunday morning service near you is going to be a trombone duet for an offertory song, and it's going to be supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Um, they were going to do it this weekend, but I'm going to be out of town this weekend, and so I, I pulled the, the big dog card and said, no, i got to be in town for that one. So, um, well, welcome, everybody. Good to see you. Um, uh, Jennifer and I and the kids are flying to California tomorrow morning. It's 110 in my hometown uh, today, so we're looking forward to that. Um, and uh, Will Hawk will be preaching this Sunday. Um, will is really jazzed up about his message. Uh, it's going to be, well, I won't tell you. I'm not going to give it. He's really excited about it, so I am too, so you should be as well um, this Sunday. And um, then we'll get back and finish up Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks the following Sunday um, and hopefully have a trombone duet um, this evening, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And I'm really eager because I want us to revel in the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. So what we're doing in these six weeks is we're looking at, the not comprehensively, not exhaustively, but we're, we're looking at some of the high points of the work of the Holy Spirit in, in the life of a believer and the church. And last week was kind of an overview, a broad overview. Tonight, we're whittling it down into... How the Holy Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, is particularly active in saving God's people. And I think this is a a bit of a neglected role of the Holy Spirit because we think, especially in churches like ours that put a lot of uh, emphasis on God's initiative and sovereignty, which I think are biblical things, we tend to highlight the work of the Father and the Son And maybe just out of, uh, not intentionally, but we tend to sometimes, I think, neglect the work of the Spirit in salvation. And so I want us to revel in that. I want us to to do more than just just fill our our minds and, and heads with knowledge. But ultimately, I want it to produce in us a, a greater worship for what God has done in us and um, in line with what has been on my heart after really working through Daniel 9 and praying, that it would produce in us a boldness in prayer that God, the triune God, would save many people uh, in, in this city and people that come in this room on Sunday mornings, loved ones that we have been praying for for a long time, and that, we would, our, our, that our faith would swell with, uh, with confidence in God's ability to save to the uttermost. So um, if you have uh, one of these sheets, go ahead and open to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read a little bit out of there. And is Lori Wood here? Lori, is Greg Wood here? Gre- uh, there's Lori Wood. Greg, Colonel Greg Wood is not here tonight, but Greg and Lori are moving to Florida 
Um, so this is probably the last time here for a little while anyway. We're going to make you come back. We're going to force you to in some way or another. But Greg and Lori are transitioning. You know, they had a terrible house fire that destroyed their house a few months ago. And, and then job stuff has transitioned them to Florida. And so Greg and Lori, we love you. We're going to miss you. They've been just faithful members of this church for several years. Um, Lori has been instrumental in our, our work in Uganda, helping to start a sewing center there. And so we love you guys. We, we, we just hate to see you go, but, but we, our prayers go with you. And so say goodbye to Lori um, if you know her well, and just send her with your prayers. We're going to miss you, sister. All right. Well, <clears throat> to, to set our hearts um, into what we're talking about, so there's not just some kind of, I don't know, kind of dusty, mundane doctrinal category, which no doctrine is mundane, but sometimes our hearts can get a little dull when we're looking at it. Just, just let's set the table for what we're going to be thinking about today. So F- Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, I'm going to read a little bit quickly until I get to verse 12, just, but just take in how glorious salvation is, the work of our triune God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Now this text that I'm reading here isn't necessarily highlighting the work of the Holy Spirit, but we're going to get to it in a moment. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. So there's the activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament saints. And oh, by the way, let me just stop and say that Logan Copley, the apostle to Nasik, India, and also pastoral assistant here for this summer at Crosspoint Church is going to be teaching next week on the Old Testament, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and transitioning into the New. And he was talking to me about what it's going to be so good. Logan's preaching next Wednesday. Don't miss it. I, I, I can't wait to listen to it. So there it is. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ working in the Old Testament, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, these Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced. That's the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Okay, so we see all of this. God the Father saving us through God the Son. God the Holy Spirit inspiring people to write it and preach it by which salvation comes to us. But then look at the last half of the sentence of verse 12. All of this great salvation is things into which angels long to look. I mean, praise God. There are heavenly beings that are like, 
peering over the fence to look into the glory of what we experience if we're trusting in Christ and what the Holy Spirit has done, has wrought in us by the grace of our triune God. And so uh, let, let's, let's, let's like set our, the table of our hearts as we think about just salvation. Okay, the order of salvation. Now, we're going to get a little bit technical here, and uh, it's not necessary for you to be a Christian to know these things, but I think it's good every now and again to sort of peel back the curtain and understand how salvation works. And so theologians for centuries have, have, have enunciated salvation by looking at kind of, in a sense, sequentially of how it happens. Now, a couple of these things happen just sort of all of a sudden at once. But this is a, a very broadly accepted and historic uh, order of salvation. of kind of how God, how salvation sort of unfolds in the life of an individual believer. And there are, are 10 things there. We're not going to cover them all. I mentioned them all. This is what the Trinity is doing in salvation. And we're going to zero in on a few of these to highlight the work of the Holy Spirit. So you see there that, um, that, that the first thing that happens, the Bible speaks about election, where God in eternity past has elected a great multitude of people to be saved. Now, people disagree on what the basis of election is. Some people um, that would come from a re- Reformed camp, which is where I and the other pastors would be, would think that God elects not based on anything in that person, no forcing faith just because of his sovereign grace. Other people would believe that God has elected people because they first elected him. That's a more uh, Wesleyan or Arminian view. I, I'm not getting into that today, but all Christians uh, can and should believe something about the word election or predestination. And so that's the beginning of salvation, that God in eternity past has predestined or elected people for salvation. And then he calls them. They are called, a calling, the Holy Spirit. We're going to get into that. They are called. And um, then uh, regeneration, which is a word that means literally the new birth. People are born again, so they, ex- they are dead in their sins. God calls them. They are born again. They're regenerated. And then immediately, and this is simultaneous, they're, they're converted. And of course, this is happening all at the same time. That's the person who was dead and is now made alive, now ha- has the ability to to exercise faith and repentance because they were given to them in the new birth, then that person immediately is justified. A justification, that is, uh, that is God declaring that person now right with him. Their sin has been taken away and the righteousness of Christ has been given to them. That person also simultaneously is adopted into God's family, adoption. So salvation is not just a legal transaction between you and the creator of the universe, but you are adopted into his family. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. And then begins the lifelong process of sanctification, whereby a Christian is in in increasing measure through their life made more and more into the image of Christ. After sanctification comes perseverance where God, by his word, by his power, we just read it in 1 Peter chapter 1, guarantees that those who are truly born again will stay his. He will lose none that are his. Nobody can snatch them out of his hand. And so Christians 
perseverance. This is the doctrine of eternal security. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit's role in that. And then eventually we all die unless Jesus comes back, which would be glorious. But we, we die if, before Jesus' return, and immediately that ushers us into the state of glorification where we are with him forever and we shall be like him. And so theologians through the centuries have, have seen this, this order of salvation in the scriptures. Virtually all theologians would agree with this. They might have differences between especially maybe what election means and regeneration a little bit. We're going to get into that. But I want you to see this progression. And I, and I also want you to realize that um, election is in eternity past. Calling is in time. God calls through the Holy Spirit. And from regeneration through adoption, th- all of this is happening like in the moment of salvation. It's like instantaneous. And so that's just to give you a broad overview of the triune work of salvation. What we're going to do is we're going to zero down into calling, the Holy Spirit's role in the calling of God's people, regeneration of God's people, adoption, sanctification, and perseverance. That's not to say that the Holy Spirit is not involved in the others, but it's to say that I think the Holy Spirit is particularly active in these aspects of our salvation. Okay, I know that's a lot. That's just a broad overview. But I want to now dive into the Holy Spirit's role in calling people to salvation. So when we think about there under letter A, that I want you to understand this biblical idea that God is calling. He's, he's, he has given a call to the world that people should turn and trust and acknowledge Him and believe in Him. The Bible clearly uh, speaks about two different types of callings. Even though it won't necessarily use these words, there's a, there's a sense of a general call that God gives to really all of humanity. And we, we see that general call in Romans chapter 1 where uh, God has, has created all things and, and that all mankind, Jew or Gentile, all mankind is without excuse because they should be able to see the attributes of, of, of God's creation and it should draw them to an acknowledgement of the Creator. But mankind has rebelled against Him. But there's a general call in which God, uh, through nature and, and it really through His, His, His people, uh, sends out a call to the world. But there's another aspect of, of calling that theologians have distinguished. Again, you won't see this word, effectual call, in the Bible. But there seems to be clearly this sense that those whom God in eternity past has elected, and you can debate as to what the basis of God's election is, that he calls those people. So go to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through, 20, uh, 28 through 30. I want you to see this idea of this gospel call that goes out that is, is nuanced and differentiated from this general call, because this call is effective. And what we mean by that effectiveness is that it accomplishes its purpose. Whereas the general call of God to humanity is resisted and rejected 
by much of humanity. There's another sense that the Bible speaks of a call, this effective call, that when God calls, people will respond. There is a, a those that, that this call is effective or effectual. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, very well-known verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those, he's going to qualify it even a little bit more, who are called according to his purpose. So there's this calling that um, applies particularly to those who, are, those who love God. For those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, and that word foreknew is a very controversial word. Um, it's debated. Uh, some people think that it means that God knew facts about people. That he, What it means there is he had a foreknowledge about what decision they were going to make, and so he elects them based on his foreknowledge of their decision. I don't think that's what that word foreknow means there. I think it's clearly been established the, uh, by, by faithful theologians through the centuries that what's going on there is that, that, that foreknowing is kind of a, a term of intimacy and love and affection, kind of like when Adam knew his wife. We don't think by that that we think that Adam knew, like, what color her hair was, right? It wasn't him knowing what some facts about her. It's a term of intimacy, right? I don't need to, I don't need to draw anything on the board there, do I, for you guys? Okay. So it's a, it's a term of love and affection. So for those whom he foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, verse 30, listen to this. Those whom he predestined, so there's a those whom he has predestined, he has also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So all those that he predestined, he also called. And all those that he called, he also justified. And all those that he justified, he also glorified. So Paul's speaking about a a subset of people here. And who are those people? Well, those are, those are believers. Those are Christians. I, I just want you to get the point here. We're not getting into a deep discussion about uh, the sovereignty of God and salvation. I just want you to see that the Bible speaks about this idea of calling in a more particular sense than a there's, a... there's a general call, and then there is a particular call. And that call is always affected because is effective because those whom he called all of them are justified and all of those who are justified are glorified and nobody that is not a christian is justified or glorified do you, do you see that so this call is effective john 6 44 put that up on the screen so i don't have to flip there just go through it real quick john 6 44 you got that no one, this is Jesus speaking, can come, to the fa- can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's another clue there and a hint, um, I think more than a clue, I think very clear, that there is this effectiveness to this type of call, and I will raise him up on that last day. Acts 16, verse 14, if you can put that up, speaks about, um, in the missionary journeys, Paul, and coming upon this lady named Lydia, who heard, there was once, verse uh, 14 there, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of uh, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart 
to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so we see this sense that God clearly is acting specifically and particularly on a person's heart, and that is the effective call. So let's just, before we move along, let's just think about some implications of the calling, because we haven't necessarily whittled it down to the work of the Holy Spirit, but let's, let's go back to that verse we read at the very beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, if you can put that up there, where it speaks about how the Holy Spirit, in verse 12, go to the end of that verse there, verse 12, that these Old Testament prophets are announcing this good news and the things that have now been announced to you, which is the news of Jesus and his work, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So what's in view here, the context of the discussion is the gospel by which these people that Peter's writing to have been saved. Put that back up there. I just want you to see the connection. The Holy Spirit is the one who is fueling that calling. Do you see? Who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. So I want us to see the activity of the Holy Spirit in the calling of God. The Father has planned salvation. The Son has accomplished it. And the Holy Spirit is the the beckoning agency of the, whole, of the Trinity calling people. So some implications for that is that the gospel by which God saves people is news to be communicated. And the Holy Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit call? When I was driving down from West Point, uh, New York, not West Point, Georgia, down to Fort Benning, I had this sense that the Lord was going to give me a wife in Georgia. And so I was looking for a message. And I was a little bit less theologically informed at that stage of my life when I was 22 years old. And so I thought, well, maybe the Lord will um, write this girl's name on some billboards as I'm driving down I-95 on the eastern seaboard. Maybe he will write it like clouds in the sky. And, um, well, it, it didn't happen. How does the Lord communicate? How does the Holy Spirit call? Primarily through us, right? And so when we, as regular, ordinary Christians, know the gospel well, the triune God is working through us to be the effectual call. In Acts chapter 16, we just read it, Paul and the apostles are sharing the gospel, and the Lord, the Spirit, is announcing the good news through them, and it is effective because Lydia, in the mysteries of God's sovereignty, he has elected her in eternity past, and he uses the speaking of human agency as the Holy Spirit speaks through them the good news of what Jesus has done to bring about salvation. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that encouraging? So, so some implications are we should, know the, we should know the gospel, right? We should be able to articulate it, and we should be able to share it with uh, people that we encounter um, throughout throughout our, our lives. Okay, let's keep going. I want to get into regeneration, then we'll pause and ask and, and, and open it up for questions before we move on. Okay, I think this is one of the areas where we really see the Holy Spirit at work in salvation. Regeneration, that may be a new term for you, but regeneration means the bringing back to life. 
the imparting of spiritual life. And implicit in the word regeneration is that there wasn't life and now there is life, okay? So to understand regeneration well, you have to understand what the Bible says about sin. And the Bible says that sin has not just neutralized us or incapacitated us, it has spiritually killed us, right? And we're going to read a little bit of that in just a minute. So um, regeneration is this idea that the Holy Spirit regenerates, brings back to life dead hearts. Another uh, phrase that is sort of synonymous with regeneration is the phrase born again. We're no, we know what we're talking about there spiritually. So in John chapter 3, very important verse. Go to John chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Um, in the evening there's Nicodemus comes to him and, and wants to understand what Jesus is teaching. And Jesus says in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and I think I mentioned this last week, I don't think that when Jesus says they're being born of water that he's talking about physical birth, although some people believe that, and I don't think he's talking about water baptism. In the Old Testament, especially in Ezekiel chapter 36, which we may read in a bit, um, the idea of the activity of water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so I think Jesus is hearkening back to one of the ways that the new covenant was promised in Ezekiel 36. And so for Jesus to say born of the water and the Spirit is really speaking of the same event of the, the new birth of the Spirit. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind, an analogy or a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we see that the Holy Spirit is the primary uh, person of the Trinity that is affecting, bringing about the new birth. He is, he is breathing life into a previously dead heart. We see uh, that alluded to very specifically in Titus chapter 3. So let me read from Titus chapter 3 uh, briefly. Paul writes to this young pastor, um, in Titus 3, let me start in verse 4. Well, let me, let, me, let me go to verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. So we know obviously what's in view here is salvation. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's that word, by the rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of 
eternal life. So that which was dead has been brought back to life. And let me just read it because we need to get a little Old Testament in here. Ezekiel 36. I don't want to steal uh, Logan's thunder for next week. I think he's going to primarily be in uh, Jeremiah. But let's just read this great promise of the new covenant, the work of the Spirit in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, where... The prophet Ezekiel is promising, God is promising through the prophet that he is going to do this work of regeneration, and it's, and, it's, and it's mentioned here in the Old Testament. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone, which was dead, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God does a heart transplant, that which was a heart of stone, which was dead. He takes it out and he puts a new heart in. And the one who's doing that work is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is bringing about new life. Now, I want to also mention that, again, we want to be careful not to compartmentalize the Trinity too much as if it's just all the Spirit and the Father and the Son are not at work as well. Because we see in other verses like uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Let me go to that real quick and read. We see that the Father is, is at work as well in bringing about this new life. So Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, so he's not just talking to the Ephesians, he's talking to all of us, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. <laughs> well, so in other words, there, okay, I, I was just telling Brenda Hale, who's from my hometown of El Centro, California, tomorrow night, I'm going to be eating at our favorite Mexican food restaurant. What's the name of it, Brenda? Celia's. That's right. And like I've said many times, there are only two types of Mexican food, right? You guys know it. There's, it's a tortilla with either pollo or carne, right? Chicken or beef. There are only two types of people in this world. Those that are dead and by nature objects of wrath and those, keep reading, Verse 4, who've been made alive by God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So here we see the Father being sort of given the, the active role in regeneration and other verses that we read, John 3 and Titus 3, it seemed to be the Spirit. So let's be careful not to parse up the Trinity's work too, too tightly. But we see that God, I think through the agency of the Holy Spirit, is taking a dead heart and he's making it alive. Okay, let's pause there and think about a couple implications. Then I want to open it up for any quick questions you may have on that point there. A couple of implications. And I want this to be an encouragement to you, especially those of us that have maybe loved ones who seem to be very far from God. No one is too dead for the Spirit to regenerate. Dead is dead. We classify humanity, don't we? 
We tend to think, well, that person seems kind of squared away, but that person... But biblically speaking, behind the veil, to be dead in your sins, whether you are a magnificently gifted human being who is curing cancer, or whether you are a crackhead in, in urban America, you're dead! <laughs> um, Will and Robert and the guys have worked a miracle. They've actually got me into watching uh, Walking Dead. And strangely enough, I just, I hate it, but I can't turn away. And um, I just, there's just something about, it's like Robert told me, just keep watching it and see, when you stop seeing the zombies and you start seeing into the souls of the people, then, then you, you know you're really watching it. And you know, the zombies, <laughs> Frank, you are, you're, the, like the zombies, they're just dead, Right? And that's, that's, so the implications are that nobody is beyond the power. It's not like there's somebody that's so far gone that the Holy Spirit can't take their heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. Dead is dead. God can save anybody. Hebrews 7, 25. He saves to the uttermost. So do you have a loved one? Do you have a son or a daughter or a mom or a dad or a spouse that seems a million miles away from God and hope seems to be forlorn and you are discouraged? Friend, God's arm is not too short to save. He can and does save the most wicked among us. That should encourage us. And then another implication that I think should humble us and cause us to be more worshipful in our response to God is that we are completely dependent upon God to act first. If the way God works salvation is he takes dead hearts and, dead hearts and makes, it, makes them alive, that has been the case for every person in this room who is a Christian, right? And so we did not first decide to improve our lives and cooperate with God, he chose, and, and, I, and regardless of what age, I mean, this is hard for us to, I know we don't think in these categories, but I was saved later in life when I was 18, and I did some really regretful things before that, and I am still, at, at times, I, I deal with consequences of my sin before I was regenerated. My wife does not remember a day when she was not trusting in Christ. But Ephesians 2 is just as true of Jennifer as it is of Brad. She was dead in her sin, born by nature, an object of God's wrath. And even though, praise God, for her sake, she was regenerated at a very early age, and I was regenerated later on, it was still death being brought back to life. And so it's all God's grace. And so therefore all of us, should give all glory to God for our salvation. Okay, let me stop there. Josh, the intern, and maybe somebody else got a mic. Any questions specifically kind of maybe about calling or regeneration before we get on to the other stuff? Anybody got anything? Yes. Uh, we got a mic coming. We got a microphone coming. So, did, where is Josh, the intern? Oh, okay, there he is. So, okay. You need to start running. Josh, the intern. Okay. <laughs> uh, this question was brought up to me today at lunch by yeah. a lady, and um, 
in regards to regeneration, we're going through Mark, and this was Mark 3.29. It says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Mm-hmm. And she asked me, because I had said, mm. you are never too dead yeah. to be saved. And then she pointed out yeah. this verse to me and asked me why. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that what's going on when, when Jesus speaks in the Gospels of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I think that um, it's... In the, its most technical and tightest sense, is attributing the works of God to the devil. But I think it, it really going beyond that. I think it's really just it's it's unbelief. It's re, it's just unbelief in God. I think I want I want to kind of expand it to that a little bit. I think that's if we kind of looked at blasphemy that against the the Holy Spirit, and I think Jesus is speaking there about those who just persist in unbelief. There's, there's no forgiveness for those who persist in unbelief and die in that. Um, but that's the thing, is that I think when you are forced to examine salvation from a biblical perspective, Ashley, you, you see that God, like, everybody blasphemes the Holy Spirit, right? Everybody blasphemes God. Everybody's resistant in unbelief. And, and God, in his mysterious providence, leaves some people in that. We... We, we don't necessarily, you know, for, the, for his purposes, and he's just in all that he does. But the glory of salvation is that God, to a great multitude of sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation, by his sovereign grace, overcomes that blasphemy and saves a great multitude of people for himself. And I think that's what election is speaking of. Now, I'm going to be very tender when I'm explaining that to an unbeliever. I'm going to say, I'm going to, say to a person, I'm going to say, you, like, you have a decision to make. Because I think, I think every now and again the Bible will give us a picture of God's utter and sovereign grace outside of time. And I think we need to be careful from that because the Bible will give us a glimpse of things from God's perspective in eternity past, past present, and future. But we live in the here and now. Right, and so I, I like I believe in God's utter and exhaustive sovereignty, but yet here I am, and here I am sitting in front of a real person who I don't know what God's eternal plan. Is. So I'm going to plead with that person, and I'm going to believe that God may use me as an agency of His gospel call to plead with that person for me to say to them, but but dear soul, dear brother, or dear friend, that doesn't like I plead that that not be you. So you don't bless him, you turn. And, and if you feel like you are getting close to that, then run, like run with me to Jesus and turn and repent and be saved. And I, I just think that's, the, like that's the, 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 the biblical model to witness that. And, and, but I don't think we need to, I don't think that you or anybody in this room needs to think, oh my gosh, did I say something so bad once in a moment of frustration that I blaspheme the Holy Spirit now? Like, like, I got this, you know, this stamp on me that, you know, I'm just humming along. I'm a member of Crosspoint, and someday I'm going to die, and, and, then, and then I'm going to stand before the Lord, and he's going to, ah, March 13th, 1989, you uttered this phrase that is the only thing that will keep you out of heaven. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, that's not, what that, that's not what that means. So, yeah. Does that help? Actually, I'm, that's kind of the best, yeah, yeah. Good, good question. Josh, the intern, wants the mic back. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Somebody else had one. Elaine. Yeah, run, run, run. 
It's not a question, but it does refer to that book that you mentioned Sunday, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. Because reading that book and understanding how God softened Lydia's heart, had her prepared, should make us so bold in us sharing the gospel with people because there are people who are prepared out there waiting to hear it and just takes a word. Right, right. Yeah, amen, amen, amen. Yeah, that's a great, I can't, I can't emphasize that book enough. It really helped me um, to, to understand how these things that seem to be contradictory from our perspective, um, how God um, intends for them to fuel us with confidence. Okay, adoption. Then the Holy Spirit is also active in adoption. So Romans chapter 8 um, is this beautiful verse about, about the Spirit's work of adopting us into God's family. So we are more, you know, we're skipping over some really important aspects of salvation. Like remember, so after regeneration, letter B comes conversion. So let's not act like, I'm, I'm, I'm going off script here a little bit, but regeneration, a person who is dead, where's my, a person who is dead, okay, they're dead. They're horizontal, okay, dead. And the Son has, on the cross, bore the wrath of God for God's people. And Jesus says in John 6 that all those that the Father has given me will come to me. And Jesus hasn't only bore God's wrath, he's turned God's wrath into favor and grace. So this is what happens on the cross. Sin is propitiated. Death is silenced. Jesus is the victor. And that happened 2,000 years ago. Now, Brad is born on January 13th, 1971 in Fontana, California. I am dead in my sins. I'm dead. On March 13th, and I don't know if this is exactly, I'm sorry, March 15th, 1989, back when Izod's were in and jeans were tight, I heard the gospel for the first time. I don't know if it was exactly the moment of my conversion, but let's just say for the argument, sake of argument that it is. Brad was dead in his sins, and my brother, my brother witnessed me. He told me the gospel for three years. He was the agency of the Holy Spirit to call, to call me. He did. I, he, I said, I'm Todd, I'm a Christian. He says, no, you're not. You're not a Christian. You're a knucklehead. You're not a Christian. For three years, that was our conversation. And so on March 15th, 1989, his girlfriend... He had went away to college. His girlfriend, now my sister-in-law, took me to a crusade, and I heard the gospel. And God gave me ears to hear, and the gospel call came into my dead heart, and it brought me, it made me alive. And in that moment, just like on March, on January 13th, 1971, I was born Well, in that moment, whenever it was, but let's just say it was that night, I was born again, and the gift immediately that God gave me was faith and repentance. 
It's not to say by any sense that I was, I was perfect, but at that moment, my first breath, when I saw and could behold, and I had an eyes to see now, I beheld Jesus, I'm alive, and now immediately is conversion. I'm, I put my hope and trust, yes, I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me, I put my faith in what he did, not in myself. That is conversion, okay? That happens, and immediately at that moment, and that's conversion, And then immediately at that moment, I'm justified. The work that Jesus did 2,000 years ago is immediately applied to me. It's mine. I've been, my sins are forgiven and Jesus' righteousness is imputed to me. All of this happens simultaneously. Boom. And then the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 does even more. He adopts me into God's family. He adopts Christians into God's family. So let's read Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Just marvel in the work of our triune God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, verse 14, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So back to verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. So think about all that's going on there at the moment of your salvation. You are brought back to life, Immediately, God gives you the gift of faith and repentance. And we know that repentance and faith are gifts because the Bible tells us they're gifts in Ephesians 2 and Romans 2. They're gifts. Now, I mean, dead people can't exercise faith, right? But now that you've been made alive, you can exercise faith. And that faith, by that faith in Christ alone, through grace alone, you're justified. And you now have the righteousness of Christ But it's not just a legal, remote transaction. Now God comes and takes residence in us by his Holy Spirit. He adopts us into his family and indwells us. So in that moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit comes in us, dwells in us, and adopts us into God's family and makes us us his child. Okay, so some implications. God is not only our creator and king, he is our father. John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. You know, sometimes we say, well, we're all God's children. No, we're not, actually. We're all God's created. God created us all. But only those who have been adopted, justified, converted, regenerated, called by God are his children. So there's this relational aspect that just fills up our salvation. And then we, won't, we don't have time to get into it because we need to move along, but God disciplines his children. So that's why this person who is a, becomes a Christian, they're, they, you know, you, you ever realize that once you become a Christian, sometimes like the early years of your Christian life are some of the most miserable? Anybody else have that experience? It's because now your spirit is alive to all of the ways that you're rebelling against God, right? And God chastens those whom he loves. 
And maybe you're miserable right now for some reason. Maybe because you're rebelling against God in some way, you know? And that's, that's a sign of God's love for you. That's what Hebrews 12 says, that he chastens those whom he loves. So take some time to read Hebrews 12. Okay, flip the page. Go to sanctification. So then the Holy Spirit is also very active in our sanctification as well. So let's read a couple verses. And so remember what sanctification is. So whereas regeneration and um, conversion, faith and repentance, and adoption and justification all happen like immediately together, almost spontaneously, simultaneously, sanctification then is starts at salvation and progresses until glorification, right? It is the rest of the life of the Christian. And so that also is primarily, um, the, the actor on us of the person of the Trinity is primarily the Holy Spirit. So put up First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter is just greeting, like just the greetings of these apostles, right? They're just saying hello, and they're laying down doctrine. I mean, it's just like, just hi, boom, doctrine. According, so he's saying hello to the elect exiles that he's writing, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he's even just setting up, this is what the Christian life is. God knew you, the Spirit's at work in you, so that you would obey Jesus. So the Spirit sanctifies. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we, Paul writing, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by God, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So we can deduce from this to be saved is to have the Holy Spirit working in you in a sanctifying way. So to have where there is no sanctification, there is no salvation. Do you see the connection there? So that rules out a whole bunch of people that just think they're Christians because they just grow up in maybe a church or the Bible land or whatever, right? Where there is no fruit, where there's no evidence of taking God's side against our sin, where there's no... To some degree, now some people's sanctification is going to be greater than others, no doubt about that. Even in the parable of the sowers in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus is talking about the different types of soil, and he says, remember, there's rocky soil, there's the soil by the thorny path, and, and then there's the soil, the, the four different types of soil, the first three prove themselves not to be Christians. Even the fourth type of soil, which is the good soil, Jesus distinguishes that there will be different yields for different batches. of. He says that some will, some will bear a crop of 30 60, 90, 100. So there's different levels of sanctification, but there must be some evidence of obedience to Christ that the Holy Spirit works in our heart. Otherwise, there's no real salvation, right? That's James' argument in James, where he says that where you, you think you tell me that you're saved by your faith, okay, show me your works, right? And the reformer Martin Luther, who battled so hard for salvation by grace alone through faith alone, had some difficulty seeing that, and he actually wanted James taken out of the Bible because he thought it contradicted Paul in Romans. It didn't, but you see the point there. James is saying that where true faith exists, where saving faith exists, there's going to be some sanctification. 
So the Spirit brings about this in our lives. He is also our comforter and our guide. So Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, uh, a beautiful text about the Holy Spirit. Let me just read it quickly. That the Holy Spirit in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, my, think about that. Jesus is saying it's better if I go away because the Holy Spirit will be here with you. The helper will not come to you if I stay here. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So he's our comforter and he's our guide. And he is the giver of gifts. So put up 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, where Peter says that as each has received a gift, speaking of Christians, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, I won't take the time to read But clearly, and we're going to get into that in a couple weeks, the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts to those in whom he has regenerated for the sake of using them to build one another up and advance the gospel. So do you see sort of the the loop that's going on in God's redemptive plan? He's making dead hearts alive. He's gifting them with gifts from the Holy Spirit so that they can be used to help make other dead hearts alive, who then he gifts with gifts from the Holy Spirit, so that they then can be used to make other dead hearts alive. And so the cycle continues and has been continuing since, since the cross. And of course, as we mentioned, uh, alluded to earlier, is that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in us. And where there is no fruit, there is no root. So that's one of the implications I have there of sanctification. We should beware, especially in our age, especially in our culture, we should beware of easy believism. People that say they're Christians, but have no discernible distinction from the world or from previous sins. Where there is no fruit of sanctification, and what I mean by fruit is evidence to some degree of obedience to Christ. Again, we're not advocating perfectionism. Every Christian still will struggle with sin. We're not glorified yet. But where there is no fruit, there is no true root of saving grace. And then another implication of our sanctification is that our salvation is not primarily about us, but about God's glory and mission. So God saves us, and he doesn't just beam us up to the starship. He leaves us here, and he gifts us so that we might be used. I remember Doug Duncan said this like four or five years ago in a men's lunch, and it was one of those sentences that has stuck in my head for years. And he said that God uses our sanctification to bring about other people's justification. And so, I think that that sentence captures that well. That my relationship with Jesus is not primarily just about me, but it's about God's redemptive plan for mankind and using my tiny little life with the gifts that he's given me to be a vessel of, or a means by which he might bring about other people's people's justification. 
And then finally, perseverance. Let me just read Ephesians 1 and then we'll stop. The Holy Spirit also is the agent of the Trinity, the person of the Trinity, primarily uh, active in sealing us and keeping us, ensuring that we do not ultimately fall away but stay with Him. So Ephesians 1, chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So God, by the Holy Spirit, puts you in a little grace, perseverance, eternal security bubble. He closes it up. And even though you may run against it, and you may go through periods of you know, rebellion and fighting with sin, your sanctification is like a stock graph on Wall Street. It's going to go up and down. Those whom God in eternity past has foreknown, set his affection at, uh, on, He has also predestined. And those whom He has predestined, He has also called. And those whom He has called, He has also justified. And those whom He has justified, He has also glorified. Past tense. So Paul in Romans 8 is saying that all of those that God draws to Himself will make it. They will persevere to the end. And if they don't make it, they give evidence Not that they lost their salvation, but that they were never truly regenerated. They may have seemed like it for a while, but they never truly were. So, this should produce in Christians who are taking God's side against their sin, great assurance. But it should also push on us so that we can't just say, well, I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want now. You see, see, it's it's like it pushes on us from both sides. It stabilizes us to realize that if we're trusting in Christ, we will make it. God will bring us safely home. But it puts another type of pressure on us so that we can't just say, well, I'm a Christian. I prayed once. I raised my hand at VBS when I was eight. I went to youth camp. I got a Young Life shirt, and I even went on a teen advisor's retreat. So now I can do whatever I want to do, right? No. Those whom God has set his affection on an eternity past. He has sealed, and he will push on them and chasten them and conform them into the image of his Son, and he will sanctify them. So that is perseverance. Okay, questions before we pray for a little bit. Questions about that. I know that was like big fire hose, little mouth. Intern Josh is roaming with the microphone. Uh, and Rick, yeah, right there, Sonny. Uh, yeah, can, um, is there any reference to being able to go through this process more than once in life? No, because I think that would imply, it's a good question, Sonny. I would imply that, it, it, that would imply that you were saved and then not saved, only to be saved again. And I think that is not a possibility given what we just said about sealing and perseverance. But I also want to say, Sonny, is that I do think experientially we may feel like, gosh, I, you know, I was at a time in my life, maybe 20 years ago, I was on fire for the Lord, and maybe I 
I, I went through a real dry spell, and then I maybe went to some church or was around a group of Christians where it just sort of lit my fire again, and I feel invigorated. It mo- may feel like, you know, you want, but I think what's going on there is that, just think of, think of sanctification as like a kind of graph, right? And um, here's a person's beginning, and, you know, the, our sanctification, we should be progressing. Now, there may be times when we regress a little bit, but I think the doctrine of perseverance and the sealing of the Holy Spirit that we read in Ephesians 1 promises that true Christians will never truly fall away and will never, God will lose none that, that he has drawn to himself and he will, he will eventually uh, bring them home. So I think that some people may feel like this period in here feels like maybe they've fallen away, but they haven't. And then there are some people, and I think this is actually quite common, Sonny, is because of the weakness of the gospel that's preached in many American churches, some people think that they're Christians and then really kind of hear the gospel and respond to the gospel in truth later on in life. And they think that they're being like recommitting their lives to the Lord or being born again again. And when in reality, I think they're just actually being regenerated for the first time. In that. But, so I don't think you can be saved twice and go through that. Was that, can I answer your question? Yeah, it's a good question. Anybody else? Sarita. Um, I just had a question because I just feel like, you know, God um, or the Spirit is just like showing me like just discerning, you know, it's a discerning spirit of um, people that's within the church. Mm-hmm. Like it's, um, how do I explain it? It's like they say that they're Christians, but there's no fruit in their lives. And yeah. the only reason how I know this is because I'm engaging in relationships with yeah. these people. Yeah. And, then, you know, like I read in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse yeah. 12 and 13, where it says, Who are we to judge the outsiders? So these people that think that they're Christians, are they outsiders or are they the church that, we're, <clears throat> that we are called to judge? So I just wanted to know, like, how do you yeah. handle that? Yeah, that's a wonderful point that you're making, because I think there's so much that we could say about that, Sarita. I think that the, the, the situation, the person, the relationship that you're highlighting, to me, is a wonderful argument for the necessity of the local church. God intends for the community of the local church and Christians, who are all imperfect, but rubbing on one another for our own sanctification, to be the means by which he authenticates, proves the genuineness of our faith, or reveals to us that maybe we're not Christians, you know, even though we think we are. And so, in a very real sense, uh, that's why church and church membership is so important, because the very situation, the chapter that you're referring to in 1 Corinthians 5 is so important Paul shows up at the church that he planted 18 months before, and he hears about a guy who's claiming to be a Christian who's sleeping with his father's wife. And everybody in the church isn't confronting him about it. And Paul is saying, this guy, as far as we can tell, is proving himself to be an unbeliever. Now, only God can, is he a Christian that's backsliding and one of the elect that God ultimately would draw back? Or is he deceived and not truly a Christian. Paul says, you know, we weren't, but the one way we have to deal with this as a church is we need to say to this person, your life is not in line with your confession, and so we are going to put you out, excommunicate you from the church, 
as a means of grace so that God might use our judgment of you as a kind of smelling salt or ammonia to wake you up so that God might either draw you back if you're just a backslidden Christian or save you. So you've hit upon, I think, the tension that needs to exist in every local church. We should be like graciously caring for each other, not like sin police, like, oh, Sarita, you know, I saw you in traffic the other day, and, well, first of all, when you were leaving the church, you shoved your kid in the car seat, and you looked frustrated, so (laughs) mark number one, and then, you know, you pulled out on Veterans Parkway in front of an old lady, and, ah, you know, I I think we need to talk to the elders about possible excommunication. No, that's that's, that's not it at all, but you see, we kind of need to kind of have this way where we care for one another, and there's this, there's this, um, there's this, so we should, we should care for one another in that way that we really care about like confronting one another if we're in blatant sin, you know? But yet, we should also have this gracious disposition towards one another too, right? Because we're assuming the Holy Spirit. There's this new little devotion that I'm reading, the Gospel Primer. John Ildris likes it too. I know you do. And there's this line in there that struck me a couple months ago. And it says that a result of the Gospel's work in my heart, when I'm in community with other Christians, is that my heart should be loaded up with confidence in the work of God and somebody else. And so I want to have this kind of I think in a biblical community, we should have this kind of vigilance towards one another, but also this like really gracious humility towards one another, assuming the best about one another at all times, but ready to care for one another should somebody like the person in 1 Corinthians 5, you know, be amongst our midst. And that is not an easy balance to strike, is it? Right? That's why it just doesn't work doing church, just coming in on Sunday and sneaking out and not really knowing anybody. You're cutting yourself off from the means of grace of sanctification that God intends for his people. Great question, Sarita. I, I, I don't know if I answered it, but... You did. Thank you, yeah, Pastor Brad. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to be humble when people point out things in me. You know what I mean? I mean, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a knucklehead. And there's stuff in me. Like, we have blind... We, they're called blind spots because we are blind to them. And we all have them. Who's that, Brooks? Brooks. Yeah. Kind of piggybacking off yeah. what she said, what if it's outside of the church, yeah. if it's family or just people that are in your life that really believe that they are saved, really believe that yeah. Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't live it, and you're not sure what yeah. they are, and yeah. they're around your children? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. little... Yeah, I, Brooks, I, yeah, I think we just, we, we, well, we want to pray, you know, and I want to, I wanted to, I mean, we're running short on time, but we want to, we want to, we want to pray for that person knowing that, Lord, you know, if they are not truly born again, that nobody's beyond your grace, and I want to have that patience and faith in God with that person, and, you know, we've all got them in our lives, family members, I want to posture myself in a way where I'm loving, but I'm looking for strategic opportunities to clarify and maybe distinguish the difference between what I think it means to follow Christ and what they think it means to follow Christ. And that can be painful, that can be hard, and it can be awkward, and it can fall on deaf ears. And if they are truly dead in their sins, it will fall on deaf ears. But you just keep announcing that good news in those sort of situations, and God prayed that God in his kindness might 
use that to, I mean, who knows when God will awaken a dead sinner. My brother witnessed to me for three years. I mean, I can remember my brother, I, I mean, he, 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 he laid it on me. And, and it just, at some point, I don't, and God just, it, it just worked. Now, we can't, we can't, we don't know that that's going to happen for all of our loved ones, but I think you just want to take strategic opportunities to distinguish. And, and then I think, and you and I have talked about this one-on-one, I don't think you need to feel bad about it. You have a special responsibility to your children, and you need to feel, you, you have a responsibility to shepherd their hearts and protect them from maybe influences that you don't want them to see. And so even the way that you may restrict some influences might even be a kind of distinguishing thing. And even if, see, we perceive, oh, it might hurt their feelings. And I don't know, is that going to burn a bridge? Sometimes bridges need to be burned in God's sovereignty as a means of communicating the distinction. And God can use that stand. So I know there's a lot of more particulars and details, but that's just my best stab at it. hope that helps a little bit, Brooks. Mi hermana from El Centro, California. Brenda Hale. Give it up for EC. Westside. All right. <laughs> I was just going to say to that, I feel like in those, um, adding to what you said, um, those relationships, I feel like it should, it, it would give us boldness to desire to be more bold in Christ, to be, yeah. to, to stand out that much more yeah. for those people that yeah. Yeah. we encounter because we never know yeah. who yeah. around us. So. Amen. Amen. That's Great point, Brenda. Great point. Great point. Angie in the back, back there. No, wait, we, let's get the mic so we can, we can, we're recording it. So can go I know you explained it, but John 3, 5, where it says you must be born of water and of the Spirit. Can you just say one more time what you think it means by yeah. water? So in, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 36, this promise of the new covenant, um, there is this sense that, is it in Ezekiel 36... Um, oh, okay. I'm at, verse twenty. Where, where, where there? Twenty-five. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Logan. Um, verse twenty-five of Ezekiel thirty-six. The new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit was typified by the sprinkling of water. So, when the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament and in a few other places as well is speaking about the activity, the work of the Holy Spirit in this sprinkling, this water activity. And so he says in verse 25, as he, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So speaking about regeneration being born again. And so when Jesus is in John 3 speaking about being born of the water, he's hearkening back to this Old Testament analogy of the activity of the Holy Spirit being typified by water. And so Jesus' words there, water and spirit, I think he's really just, he's, he's saying the same thing with two different expressions of it. Other interpretations of that, there are two major ones. One, it's saying that you must be born um, physically, and, and like, like, you know, like when a woman's water breaks, like the, the people think that that's what that's referring to. I just, I just don't think that's what Jesus has in mind there. I think there's lots of good reasons. We won't get into it. Other people wrongly, and I think this puts them in the classification of really cults because they're adding to salvation. They believe that what Jesus is speaking about there is that you need to be born of water, meaning you need to be water baptized. 
But we got to let the Bible interpret the Bible. If that's what Jesus is saying, then Jesus is contradicting what he says at the end of the Gospels to the thief on the cross when he says, today you will be with me in paradise if we can baptize you in the next 45 seconds. (laughs) But he doesn't say that, right? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And then we read all of Paul's stuff where he's just talking about we're saved by grace through faith alone. So that rules that potential interpretation out. And I think there's just lots of strong evidence that that coupling of water and spirit is hearkening back to that picture in the Old Covenant, a promise in the Old Testament of the New Covenant. Does that make sense, Angie? Yeah, good question. And if any of that was wrong, Logan will clear that up next week, by the way. <laughs> just, just be gracious, Logan, please. Respect your elders. Any other questions? All right, I wanted to do this as late. Um, I, I'm going to pray, but here's my burden. I want us to think, Brooks, I mean, I, I, was thinking, I was thinking about the very thing you brought up. I'm going home to California tomorrow. There are, like, there's people that I love that I know don't know Jesus, right? And I want to be loaded up with confidence that God can and does save to the uttermost and that nobody is beyond his ability to save. And man, it's hard. It's discouraging. Like, I can be, yeah, we're like, yeah, right now. Like Brad's saying this, yeah, I'm with a bunch of my brothers and sisters, yeah. But put three weeks on this thing and a couple of discouraging conversations and we can be down in the dumps again thinking, oh God, really? Right? But right now, like, let's pray and let's think, let's believe, let's stand on the scripture that God uses our prayers, our faith, he responds to them. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's outside of time, but he uses, he, he has an end, but he brings about his end through the means of us praying And let's stand on this beautiful truth that God saves dead hearts like he did us. And nobody's too dead to be brought back to life. So I'm going to pray right now. You pray for one or two people in your life that are dead in sin, that you are believing God to save. And let's end that way. And um, we'll be gathered back together next Wednesday. Logan will be teaching Will this Sunday. Um, let's Let's go to God. Father, thank you for this beautiful truth of salvation. Thank you that the Holy Spirit calls us, that he brings about new birth, that he adopts us into your family, that he works in us right now. All of your people in this room are being worked on by your Holy Spirit. What a beautiful, comforting truth, and that you guarantee that we will be brought safely home. You have sealed us, and you will complete the work that you have started in us, as you said in Philippians. Lord, we we now... Before we end, we turn our attention to some dear loved ones that all of us have that do not know you. God, would you be so gracious? Would you save them? It is not too difficult to think for you to do. Would you take those dead hearts and would you speak life into them and would you make them alive and would you glorify yourself? Would you delight in saving dead hearts? that are loved ones of people in this room. And would, would you give us wisdom to see how we might be part of the means of that process, all for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we'll see you in a couple weeks. God bless.